Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we will be discussing Yanis Metz's sports biopic, Borg McEnroe. I'm Sam Howlett and this week I'm joined by Jake Cunningham. Hello mate, it's nice mm-hmm. to finally hear that sport is getting a biopic. Sports biopic. <laughs> it's a combination of two genres, Jake. Okay. The sports film and the biopic film. Uh, I, I'm glad you clarified. Hyphenated, it's not yeah. like it's a Elvis biopic, which wouldn't be hyphenated, would it? No, it wouldn't. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, so we'll be discussing the film in detail, as well as having an interview with one of the film's stars, Sweden's finest, Stellan Skarsgård. Very exciting indeed. But before we get into all that, Jake, what have you been up to? What have I been up to? Mm. Many, many things, okay. including watching The Leftovers. Cool. Uh, yeah, this is, so this is Damon Lindelof's uh, post lost tv mm-hmm. show that people actually like uh, yeah. this is his almost his redemption i think I think so yeah yeah um but then i'm a defender of uh, damon lindelof but okay. i can i can understand some people's issues with his work uh maybe with star trek or yeah tomorrowland but those films are fine by me yeah. but i know it's it's the lindelof final act it's, okay but, are you know, saying his career is now over this no. is a swan song <laughs> no i think but that's that's generally where his issues okay. like because yeah. he's, he's great he's a great ideas man okay but he he can show you is a bit like stephen moffat i think as well mm. and then he can come up with the idea and give you so like all these different puzzle yeah. pieces and you think oh what is this final image going to be but mm. then when you actually get the image together yeah it's not the nicest image um and so this is going back to TV after going into film after Lost. Yeah. And we, he, I was listening, the thing that got me to start watching it was I was listening to an, an interview with him and he said the thing that the issues that were caused in Lost came from starting with the characters and then dropping in the mystery mm. and making the mystery the big thing. And then once you've done that to people you need to make sure that the mystery makes sense. Yeah. And the mystery pays off because you've built it up for so long. And so the, with the leftovers, 2% of the entire world's population disappear in an instant. Mm -hmm. And that's the mystery, but that happens in the very first scene. And so Lindelof wanted to make something 
mm-hmm. that meant that he didn't have to keep trying to build the mystery box. Yeah. He just got it out of the way. And then that leaves the leaves room to build on what something like that would create in people. Yeah. And I, I, I'm really enjoying it so far. I'm about halfway through the first season. Halfway through season one. Yeah. yeah. And I know you've watched it already. And I texted you because I would have watched this years ago if you had told me that it's got Johnson from Peep Show in. As, as a character called Holy Wayne. Yeah. Is it Holy Wayne? Or yeah. Was, yeah. Who hugs people better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that, yeah, the best thing about The Leftovers is that it really has nothing to do with the mystery, mm. really. It's all about how people just try to get on with their lives post this unexplained event. And I think, did, did Damon Lindelof do Flash Forward? I don't know. He might well have done. But there was that Flash Forward show, which was some writers of Lost were involved with Flash Forward. Mm. And this was a show which has a kind of similar premise where the whole world um, was suddenly given like like images of their future right. at the same time and like time stopped or something like that. And then, but that's a really boring mystery. Yeah. <laughs> and the show didn't have was... any characters and they were just trying to find out why did that happen? Well, this, there was this slew of shows post loss because there was yeah flash forward the other one that was was it the 4100 or the, the 1400 or the 1100 <laughs> or something i can't remember okay. um but it was that there was an airplane right that disappeared in 1963 oh, okay. and then appeared in yeah. 2008 and there was another one which had hurley from lost Alcatraz. Alcatraz, uh, where yeah. people who were in prison from Alcatraz would just show up in Alcatraz prison <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> why, didn't, why didn't that last? Um, oh, there was another... Wasn't there one by, produced by Steven Spielberg that we, for some reason we went back to the, the Jurassic era? Oh, yeah. Terra, Terra Nova, I think yeah. it was called. <laughs> uh, and um, didn't J.J. Abrams produce a... Kiefer Sutherland one? Uh, yeah, that one was called... Touch. 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 And that was by the creator of Heroes. Great. And so, these, obviously, all of these, these are, all good. are still going. Hit, hit after hit after hit. <laughs> yeah. But Leftovers, it's got three seasons, and that's yeah. beginning to end. Yeah. And so there's no, like, oh, when's it going to end? Yeah. There's only... I think nowadays people want actually because there's so much TV we actually want a shorter series. I think so. so there's yeah. ten episodes of The Leftovers. Yeah, great. No, just know your limits as well. Mm. I mean, The Leftovers is, is a it's a weird show. Mm. I mean, these shows we've been talking about, Flash Forward, Alcatraz, are pretty you know classic in their form. They're pretty standard, and they'll attract an audience, I guess. But Leftovers is so weird and sort of quirky that it hasn't attracted the hugest audience. So it knows its limit. It, yeah. it knows its limits. So it says, okay we'll stop after three because that will allow us to properly wrap things up the way you want to do it. Mm. And then you're not left with a kind of Twin Peaks scenario 25 years ago where you end on a cliffhanger that you can't, you know. And My Name is Earl. And My Name is Earl, which ends on a huge cliffhanger. Yeah. 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 And uh, The Leftovers has really cool titles. And I think they, mm. when I get into it more, I think they play around with the titles they a do. bit as well. And so... That changes. Yeah, that's something. Yeah. I get a lot of satisfaction out Definitely. of some good titles. Yeah. And uh, lead man, Justin Theroux, mm. Louis Theroux's cousin. Wow. Or distant cousin or something. I didn't, yeah. Some I, relation, yeah. It's a pretty uncommon name, so you think yeah. there's got to be something there. Yeah. And I, it's based on a book by Tom Perota, who is involved. He's a producer. Yeah, right? he's a yeah. producer. So, um, yeah, Leftovers is great. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Mm. What have you been watching? 
Well, I saw uh, Wind River yesterday, oh, cool. yeah, which is currently playing in Curzon Cinemas. Oh, thank you. Um, it's really, really good. Mm. Um, so this is the directorial debut of Taylor, Taylor Sheridan, Sheridan, who wrote Sicario and Hell or High Water, um, both of which I believe were Oscar nominated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's this kind of... You know, he's really highly regarded as a writer for those two films. And this is his directorial debut, and it's very, very strong. Um, I think I was expecting it to... Because I think the trailer made it look a little bit generic. I've not I've not seen this yeah. Um, yet, but I, I do really want to, and I really admire those his two other films that he's yeah. written. And yeah, I remember... Because it premiered at Sundance, didn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and it came out really well at Sundance, yeah. and it has died down a bit now mm. um but yeah i'm still really excited to watch it and yeah i love there's something like insomnia or something a nice snowy murder yeah is well, always fargo good. yeah what a simple plan yeah and what um sheridan does really well with all of these three films is that they are essentially genre films they're crime thrillers but each one has a kind of twist so the, the sicario it's that it's oh it's the mexican drug war essentially Hell or High Water is this kind of no country old men type, you know, the end of the cowboy Texan uh, sheriff. And this one is a murder on a Indian reservation, which is something, again, that isn't really in film that much. So that's mm. a nice little twist. And uh, so Jeremy Renner is like a professional hunter, essentially. Doesn't he work uh, for like the bird police? Yeah, pretty much he works <laughs> for the bird police. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and yeah, he finds this murdered girl and then uh, Elizabeth Olsen is the FBI agent who's sent in to solve the crime and they kind of team up and that sounds pretty generic. Oh yeah. Um, but it's really well done. But you could, like, that's Sicario. Exactly. It's also coming up, like you could pitch that. Hello High Water. Say, it's oh, desert, it's, a, it's a bank robber. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it looks beautiful. Like you said, the sort of, this whole image of like, the blood in the snow is used really well. The landscape's really well shot. Um, there's definite shades of Silence of the Lambs in there, actually. Oh, Not cool. in terms of, like, its creepiness, but Elizabeth Olsen's character is very Clary Starling, I think. And it's also... It's got a really nice, slow pace. And then the action will happen very quickly and very suddenly. Um, so, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Highly recommend it. It's It's a lot more emotional than I was expecting, actually. It's not just there to be, you know, a kind of BBC One crime thriller mm. like to, to sort of make you ooh, you know um, yeah highly recommend Wind River okay excellent well so that's what we've been up to um, so before we talk about today's film Borg McEnroe we will have an interview with Stellan Skarsgård the film is about the rivalry between two of tennis's greatest players Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe one uh, Bjorn Borg is known as this kind of very quiet very peaceful, very kind of stoic figure who doesn't have tantrums on court. He, you know, he keeps all his emotions inside. And then John McEnroe is the opposite of that. He's, you know, everyone knows John McEnroe. Everyone knows you can't be serious. Everyone knows that he was nicknamed Super Brat. He was this really sort of brash New Yorker, very loud American that the Brits didn't really like. So this absolute clash of these two different characters happening on court and... This film is 1980 at Wimbledon, and it, it sort of builds up to their, um, their match, which took place in the final. 
so we have Svere Gudnason, who plays Bjorn Borg, and Shia LaBeouf as John McEnroe, which does sound like comedic stunt casting. But uh, he's, he's great. He's perfect, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then also, as uh, Borg's coach, mentor, slash father figure, we have Stellan Skarsgård as Lennart Bergelin. Uh, so we spoke to Stellan Skarsgård about the film. Enjoy. So, uh, thank you for joining us, Stellan Skarsgård. Thank you. Um, so, we're talking about Borg McEnroe, of course, and the film which centres around the 1980 uh, Wimbledon final. Um, do you have any memory of the 1980 Wimbledon final? Did you watch it when it was on? Yeah, I did, of course. Everybody in Sweden watched it. When, he, when Borg was playing, uh, Sweden stopped. Uh, everybody at, at workplaces and factories, everybody stopped working and, and got to the closest TV set. And even in schools, they rolled in television sets uh, in the classrooms and and watched the game. Um, fortunately, he he played a lot in the summer when people were free anyway. Uh, no, so everybody watched it and and uh, I, and I saw all the matches. And this this game in particular, I remember very well. I saw it at my uh, former wife's parents' house, okay. and it it was one of the mo- most dramatic. Uh, things I've ever seen on television. Yeah, I can imagine. <sighs> and it's so incredibly recreated in the film that even though I knew what was happening, I was still, you know, tense during yeah. the tie break. Yeah, no, I it's, can it's imagine what it was like to watch live. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. Uh, so you play Leonard Berglin in the film, who was um, he was Borgs, who was many things to Borg, wasn't he? He was his coach, his mentor, his kind of a father figure as well. But there was also not not quite a jealousy, but a slight sort of sadness perhaps that he never quite got to where Borg was in his career is that something that was in the script or is that something that you yourself brought to the role no it was in the script and and uh, I liked the idea the sort of this this, uh, streak of sorrow (laughs) in him Uh, but but sometimes I've said that it's like a Salieri meeting his Mozart uh, and seeing in this young boy this 15 year old boy he sees Everything he he had dreamt of, uh, he could be as a tennis player, and and he sees this incredible new thing, mm. and uh, and of course he falls in love in a way, yeah. and and eventually becomes not only the coach but also as a father figure, and they they lived closely together you, uh, during those years. I mean, they were constantly uh, on tour and uh, lived under rather simple conditions mm. in hotel rooms and everything, and. Um, did you rewatch any of the the final before the um, before you made uh, made the film so you could see any of Berglund's reactions or anything like that? No, I I I I googled and uh, YouTubed any footage I could find on on Berglund, but it wasn't much. Okay. It's not much there, and uh, there's the occasional interview. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I my ambition was not to imitate the real Berglund. It was it was more I was more interested in trying to find. The relationships uh, that that the script mm-hmm. needed, um, but I put on a ball cap and a comb over, and, and it sort of made it clear <laughs> who he was at least. And the, the, a week before the premiere, I, I called Bergelin's widow, and I said to her, "Hi, this is Stellan Skarsgård. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm playing your husband, but it's not your husband." And then she was she's like 90 years old, and she was quiet for a minute, and then she said. Well, it's not a documentary, and then I felt good about it. Um, so Borg is, as you said, like one of the big um, sort of sports stars to come out of Sweden. Um, and you know, we all think we know that 
Borg McEnroe was kind of this fire versus ice kind of thing, the quiet man versus the loud, brash American. Um, and I assume that's... Did you think that going in, and how did your views on these two men change after the script and after making this film? Well, it, it did change because, because of course, uh, since that was... Uh, publicity invention and a media thing to create uh, this uh, fire and ice uh, uh, fight between the good guy and the bad guy, the the gentleman and the brat and everything, all, all those contradictions, which is a great way to sell tickets, but but it's, it's not even close to truth. Mm-hmm. But through the script, I understood, yeah, they, they were actually very much alike. But Borg... Uh, Partly thanks to Berlin, uh learned how to how to control his feelings and how to put the pressure the lid on the pressure cooker and keep it inside and and use that energy for for something constructive instead of destructive. Okay, so when you first uh, are given a script, what is it that usually convinces you to take the role? Is is it the character? Is it who's involved in the film? It depends. Uh, uh, I mean, Lars von Trier called me once and said, Stalin, my next film will be a porno film. Uh, I want you to play the lead. And I said, yeah. And I hadn't seen the script yet. Uh, uh, but that is, that is the rare occasions. Um, but otherwise, I mean, is, is there something in the script that makes this, that make, could make this film different from, from other films that, 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 that has a personality to it? Or do we have a director that, that has a very strong personal vision that can, can make this uh, film not just look like a copy of other films? Because most of the, or very many at least, of, of the scripts you get, you have a feeling that, that it's, it's, they're written to, to resemble a film the writer already had seen. And that's horrifyingly <laughs> sad. <laughs> So, so, but, but this, this was um, this script. It was, it was not a normal sports film because not it's sure. uh, uh, the underdog doesn't win. It's, it's, it's not about who wins. It's, it's, it's not a good guy against a bad guy. It's two human beings uh, that are struggling at a very high level, and it became really interesting psychologically and, and in terms of of their relationships. So, so that interested me. And then the director interested me because uh, what he wanted to bring out in the film and managed to bring out in the film is exactly what interests me, the human beings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I also knew and could feel that he had the determination and the, the sort of the uh, stupid pit bull energy to, 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 to make sure that he got the film that he wanted and he would not stop halfway. Uh, even if uh, they ran out of money or whatever, he would he yeah. would finish it. Um, so, so thinking back to I guess the kind of past sort of decade in your career, you've made a, quite a varying like big Marvel films, parts of the Caribbean films, and also the sort of smaller independent art films. When you make these big films, is there a feeling of sort of one for them and then one for me with the art films, or so like you you can afford uh, not afford, but you can you can do these smaller, more interesting films when you having done these bigger films or should we not think about film in that way do you think I, I don't think you should think about it in that way it's uh it's it's different dishes on a, on a on a very generous table hopefully yeah. and and sometimes uh, uh you want an exquisite exquisite little, little yeah. special dish made by a three-star michelin right. chef and sometimes you just want a burger um, and i enjoy myself very much when i'm doing those yeah. uh, those big hollywood films as, as well but of course in a different way and when it comes to sort of uh, 
acting challenges is usually more psychologically interesting material the the lower the budget is and the freedom of the director is greater the lower the budget is if you don't talk about fincher who make 100 million dollar independent movies um but but uh but i i I, i'm really good at enjoying me whatever kind of film it is yeah great um so you've mentioned him already actually um the director that I think people associate you with most Lars von Trier and I think you know you seem to bring the best out in each other. Um, how would you describe your relationship, your working relationship with Lars? It's, it's it doesn't resemble work at all. It res- it's, it feels like yeah. uh, it feels like we meet and have fun together. Okay. And uh, his set is wonderful to be on because yeah. it's totally non-hierarchical and anybody can say anything yeah. to anybody. And as an actor, you're totally free to try whatever you want. Yeah. And uh, and and making mistakes is is encouraged, and uh, making a fool out of yourself is encouraged. It's which is extremely liberating. Yeah. Uh, and he's a lovely man. Excellent. Um, and his next film, The House That Jack Built, uh, you're not in, correct? Yeah. No, he called me and said, Stalin, my next film will be a Skarsgård free film, so none of you will be in it. Okay, it's fine. Good luck, I said to him. <laughs> Has he told you anything else about the film, which he's described as his most brutal work yet? Yeah, well, I've read the script and uh, and, uh, and I've talked to him about it. And uh, uh, he says that uh, the result looks pretty good. Okay. And uh, and I think it will be, it's pretty brutal. It's a serial killer. So, And when Lars von Trier does a serial killer, he, he doesn't hold back his punches, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and then very quickly then, um, can you tell us anything about your role in uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote? Well, it's it's, uh, it's not much to say. It's not much of a role, but it was it was great fun to be a part of that project, um, and I've, I've loved Terry Gilliam's for so many years. Yeah. Uh, the setup is is it's it's um, uh, is a advertising director played by by uh, uh, Adam Driver, who is doing a commercial for 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 uh, wind turbines. Uh, that's that's the setup, and I'm I'm his boss okay. in the advertising agency, and I'm also some someone he fears and loathes. <laughs> and uh, it's 16 years in the making for Terry. Did he did he seem relieved that it was finally getting made, or was uh, there a kind of anxiousness? To- no, he he seemed very happy to finally do it, and he he's he's a lovely man on the set, and he he. I had a lot of fun doing it. Excellent. Stanis Garsgård, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Nice to see you again. Okay. So, Jake, how much of this match did you know before going into the film? Okay. So, uh, I like tennis in Mm -hmm. the way that most English people like tennis in that I watch Wimbledon. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And um, I watch Wimbledon when it's on and I don't have much memory of what happened before cool but I, I enjoy watching it yeah and so i saw a a still from the film and i said oh don't you think that's um that's a bit of a spoiler for the film mm-hmm. and you said to me oh no everyone knows mm, wins yeah which i did not know <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, so I, I don't know who I didn't know. I, well, now that I've watched the film, I do know. Yeah, be, I don't think the film would be great if uh, ambiguous ending. Yeah. <laughs> it builds up to the final and then never shows you yeah. who wins. Um, I now know who won, but I didn't know. Okay, and so it, this was this was fun to watch because 
I still had an idea after okay. after what you said to me. I felt like I knew. I was like, oh, then that immediately the film had uh, it was an uphill battle, right? For me, okay, because it was like, oh, it's really got to give me a lot in terms of character mm. to sell the fact that now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I know the result. Right, okay. And I think it really achieved that, yeah, actually. That definitely. Oh, yeah, for me, yeah, I knew who won. I knew who both men were. I knew their kind of... What they, what they were thought of in the world of tennis, that Borg was the kind of... The Iron Man. You know, he was very popular with the crowd, but also really never never showed it. Um, and he was the reigning champion. And then McEnroe kind of entered as the young kid that was there to take him down, essentially. So I knew that going in, and I knew the result of the match. I knew that it's uh, it's also considered one of the best tennis games in history, this match. So I thought, how? what's the point of this film, I thought, for me? I know, it was ha- I know what happens. I know who both characters are already. What's this film going to give me that I don't already have? Yeah, I think this is this is a a struggle that a lot of true life sports films will struggle with so one that one of my favorite sports films is the damned united because of that be that is for the audience an uphill battle the whole way through because with this you get a natural energy from the fact that there is a victory yeah and so and you have a winner and a loser right and the Damned United is about Brian Clough's reign as manager for Leeds United. And it is a catastrophic failure. Yeah. And it's well documented how bad yeah. it is. And you you just know watching the film, this this is terrible. Like this is going so badly and it's only <laughs> getting worse. Yeah. And yeah, you if you know Brian Clough, you know that few years there will be Mm. victory then but yeah. this is not the story of the nottingham forest champions league final no. this is the story of the worst time um and so and the fact that the damned united for me is um tom hooper's best film mm-hmm. is a remarkable achievement i think and it also has a really i think because tennis is maybe not as popular as football mm-hmm. or it's not as divisive as football yeah it's 
it's almost easier to get people to watch a tennis film. Whereas when people don't like football, they, they don't, don't like football. Yeah. yeah. And so the Damned United managed to make a lot of people who couldn't care less about football care about a f- six weeks yeah. at a football club, which I think is amazing. Definitely, yeah. So did you, did you, I mean, did you know who John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg were before you went in? Yes, okay. I did know who both of these men were. <laughs> okay. And are. Okay, yeah, I'm trying to gauge. I'm trying to gauge. Because, um, yeah, I'm thinking if people who have no idea would see the title of this, I'm thinking, what? Mm. Um, well, I think in terms of tennis, in like the tennis history that we yeah. have, it's kind of, it'll be Borg, McEnroe, for me, um, Billie Jean King, Fred Perry. Right, okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay. In terms of things the, that are the beyond... Kind of the basics. Yeah, yeah. more than okay. 30, like 30 years older yeah. or more. That's I, yeah. I'm like, sure. pretty yeah. ignorant. But I, I, I don't think it would be terrible to say that there's probably a lot of people in that same boat. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's... I mean, this is kind of a cliche thing to say about a sports film, but I'm going to say anyway, that you don't have to like the sport to like the film. I mean... Even something like you say, Damned United. If you don't like football, I'm sure you will like the Damned United. Yeah. And even well, something like Senna, which is oh, a documentary. Yeah. I mean, I'm not into Formula One at all, really, but I love Senna. Yeah. And why? Well, I mean, and weirdly, there's stuff like Rocky and obviously mm. all of the Rocky films. Yeah. How many people actually like engage in boxing regularly yeah. in the same way that people involve like in, I know, engage in tennis? Yeah. But Rocky's huge. Yeah. Well, boxing film is probably the most popular sports film, right? Mm. Um, I guess it's because it's got that, got that kind of, sort of gladiatorial one man against the world aspects mm. to it. And they're always painted as these underdogs from often from poor backgrounds. So you've got that narrative kind of automatically built into a boxing film. Yeah. Is this the first tennis film, like true life tennis film? The well, first big one, at least. Because I can't think well, of another... Or you've got like Wimbledon. And yeah, but I mean, they're not based on reality, are they? Yeah, um, I could. Other, there is another tennis film coming out in a there couple is, of weeks, yeah. Battle of the Sexes, and it's it's this thing of like we, we know this idea of Hollywood yeah. cloning. Yeah, not that this is a Hollywood film, but someone has no. an idea for oh, we're going to do the first great tennis film. Uh, and someone else, yeah. Oh no, we need to do a tennis yeah. film. Yeah, we'll release it the month later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's break down the actors then. So let's get the big one out of the way. Shia LaBeouf as John McEnroe. Perfect. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But not really. When you think of the the footage that we all know of John McEnroe and yeah. what we've seen of John McEnroe and yeah. and how he is now, where he's obviously a lot calmer and a bit more yeah. subdued, but you can still kind of see it under the surface, yeah, that yeah. passion of his. And I think Shia LaBeouf has, almost, has gone through that same arc that I think McEnroe okay. goes through yeah. in the film. Uh, in that there are there are moments and we all we all know what Shia LaBeouf has done and the the, the antics and the rage and the fights yeah. and then having to actually check himself effectively yeah and think about his public persona and who he wants to be and what he wants to achieve mm. and almost in a way him doing this film feels like that moment that this is him kind of stepping up into because he's done stuff like Fury or Nymphomania yeah. where he wants to be taken as a serious actor but those are supporting yeah. like, like minor roles really mm. this is him going out and a biopic is always a way to kind of announce yourself yeah. as well as a at, serious contender yeah. for 
And so I think he had a lot of weight on his shoulders. American icon. Yeah. Too. You can see it's him. Like it's mm. recognizably LaBeouf, but yeah. it's also completely believable as McEnroe. Yeah, I think so. Um, I read something interesting that he was offered the chance to play uh, McEnroe a few years ago in a film called Super Brat. Right. But he turned it down because he said it was a comedy. It was um, sort of ridiculing McEnroe. He was this ridiculous figure in this film and he didn't want to do that. And I think John, portraying John McEnroe in a film could very easily turn into farce or he could be a clown, mm. essentially, figure that people laugh at and he just goes really goes for it with his, his tantrums. But And I'm sure that you would have a lot of fun doing that. Oh, yeah, definitely. But I think he's made the right choice to go for this version because mm. you do really feel for McEnroe a lot in this film yeah which I think is is a hard thing to do because he is often thought of as this quite unlikable character yeah it's what what I think is really interesting is the titling of this film so here it's Borg versus McEnroe Mm -hmm. in America it's both of them as well in Sweden who the country that produced the film the film is just called Borg really that's interesting I mean it, it it does favour Borg, perhaps, mm. the uh, representation, but that is interesting. Yeah, because yeah. I, th- I think it makes... I think uh, as a character, we natu- I think there is more depth to Borg because Absolutely, yeah. at this point we're, we're seeing the up-and-coming McEnroe, yeah. but we're seeing the peak of Borg. Yeah. And so it, there's more more rise to get yeah. out of him and so the film goes back in time a lot further with Borg and it looks at him at a young age playing tennis against his garage door yeah. and bits of training and how he was in a mental space really similar very to Mac- similar like to this McEnroe. is the stuff that I had no right. idea about yeah. uh, and so that we all know John McEnroe is being super passionate and super angry yeah. and effing and jeffing yeah. and Borg was like that in his youth yeah. and that had to be kind of stomped out of him, yeah. which I had no clue about. All I had ever been given out of these two men is Iceman and Maverick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so Sveria Good- Goodnesson um, is uh, beyond Borg in the film. First of all, he's an absolute dead ringer for Borg. Mm. That's incredible casting. Um, and he really gets this idea of everything is so internal for Borg and that comes across really well Um, yeah and I'd say it's his film essentially and I guess that's quite hard to do to act like that against Shia LaBeouf so where Shia LaBeouf has ramped everything up to 11 to play McEnroe he has to tone it down but still be a presence on screen yeah and you must as an actor he must be looking at Sean just thinking, yeah. oh, I would love that. <laughs> oh, the way just throwing yeah. stuff around yeah. and shouting and screaming. That looks so much fun. But so he's got a lot on his shoulders to show all of that rage mm. without showing it. Yeah. But you, I think he really does. Yeah, definitely. Um, and as well, I think that Borg is seen as this kind of this struggling artist in this film rather than a sportsman. Yeah, that's a really neat way of thinking about it. It almost like his hotel room almost feels like an artist studio. Yeah, yeah. The the way he kind of um, I love I love the scene when they're walking on the rackets to mm. test how springy they are to test if they have been strung correctly. Um, he's yeah, he's almost like a poetic 
almost tragic character in a way, Borg. Yeah. Um, and the fact that he retired at the age of 26, I think, which is something I didn't know, actually. I know everything. Yeah. So even I didn't know that. Um, I think it just feels true that this character we see on screen, played by um, Goodnesson, feels like the kind of person that would retire at 26. Yeah. And al- almost seems to hate tennis mm. as much as he loves it. And it's a real... Well, they say in the film, it's, it's life and death, yeah. tennis, to him. Yeah. And it's like it, it took so much out of him. He put so much into tennis that he like, lost part of himself in the game. Mm. So couldn't go on anymore because it was too hard. Which I don't think, you know, is something, again, that you see in a boxing film. But you wouldn't expect it from a tennis film. Yeah. Because tennis is kind of, you know, they talk about it in the film. Tennis is the gentleman's game. But these, these are two men who I think are fiery and passionate in very different ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, a, a re- there's a lot of nice kind of parallels between using tennis as a, as a match for life itself. Right. And that it opens with this great Agassiz quote that the language of tennis is the language of life, that there yeah. is fault and love. And uh, something that someone pointed out to me is that tennis as a sport is quite unique in that you can't just build a crew loads of points mm. and then hold your lead. No. You can only win on the last point. Yeah. And that's what I think brings up a really great tension in seeing tennis on screen mm. is that with a football film, it's just go, go, go. Yeah. Like how many times can we see the same thing <laughs> yeah. for someone to win? But this yeah. is, you know that there is only one shot that will win it. Yeah. And so it's just waiting and waiting for that moment. And there is a particular tie break in the final between the two men that goes on and yeah. on and on and you you think you're at the last point and they're just slogging through it and it's, it's know, really yeah. impressive to watch yeah and i think that's where they maybe get most kind of lost into it it's really impressive yeah. to watch and even knowing the result of the match which we won't say now just in case um but yeah even me watching it knowing the result i was still i felt the tension i knew it was going to happen but i was still i was clenched and that the uh, the tie break lasted 20 minutes and that must have been incredible to watch. Mm. Also something that they do really well here, and this is probably, um, yeah, credit to Janus uh, Metz for this, is that tennis is, is filmed a lot. We know what a tennis match looks like, the way it's filmed. It's got that overall aerial shot. It's very static. So we're, we're just, it's always bird's eye view. The camera stays. You know, football, it moves back and forth a bit, but tennis, mm. it often stays very still. So how do you make tennis... Um, cinematic. Cinematic, and it's... The way he films the match, the the actual Borg versus McEnroe final, is so kinetic and so dynamic um, without being overly stylized. I mean, it could have been ridiculous, the amount of sort of the ways they, they could have done loads of split screen. They could have done this, could have done that. Yeah. But I think they just about managed it. Yeah. Um, I remember when Wimbledon first got the slow motion cameras. Right. Yeah. And uh, Oh, they love it. <laughs> they love it. The BBC would just go from, you've just got your standard aerial shot. It's like, ooh, and here's a bird that's landed on the court. <laughs> this gentleman's dropped his beer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, uh, yeah, you're worried that they might do that. Yeah. But it, it's just like your classic tennis crowd shot of back and forth yeah. and back and forth yeah. and clapping. But then you get these really, I don't know whether they whether they would have been done with drones or, or a crane or something, but you've got these really beautifully framed 
um, shots where they break up the court almost yeah. into quarters. Yeah. And and they move in and out of them. And you you just see it almost divides them up. And by... Because you're shooting completely over the top. Yeah. You remove that crowd and it reminds you of the personal battle that's going yeah. on here. Uh, and I think that would that's the only way that they could have shot it by going completely above the two men. Yeah. That you could just have them on screen. And not to bring it up again, but it's like a boxing film where essentially this is just two men in the ring mm. and that's what this does. It goes into the court. It doesn't just linger on the outside like we're used to. I'd love to know the number of uh, cuts as well for this. In the film? For this, this sequence, oh, yeah. the game, because it is really ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and let's quickly talk about Stellan Skarsgård as well. Mm. So he plays Lennart Bergelin, who was someone I didn't really know had that much impact on Borg's life. But he essentially sculpted Borg mm. from... And he was in three Wimbledon quarterfinals. He was, yeah, as he kept reminding us. Yeah. I also liked that there was this kind of uh, melancholy to his character that he didn't quite didn't quite make it. Yeah, and and it kind of adds to the pantheon of the it sport does, film yeah. cliche, yeah. doesn't it? Um, this is like <laughs> I don't I don't know why this has been the first sportsman to get into my head for this idea. This is Chubbs Peterson from Happy Gilmore, <laughs> isn't it? It's like he could have been great, but then a crocodile yeah. ate his hand. <laughs> yeah. But like, that's it. You always need this mentor figure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a kind of sort of uh, Salieri-Mozart relationship between them. All that. Maybe not Chubbs Peterson yeah. and Happy Gilmore. A little bit more highbrow, Jake. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think Skarsgård is always watchable on screen. Yeah. Um, and he does a really good job as well, I think, managing the role of this kind of mentor, coach, father figure, but also, in a way, slight rival to him. Yeah. Rival to his former self, and there's a slight jealousy there. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's your Obi-Wan Luke. It is your bit. Obi-Wan Luke, and yeah. Like, know it, you're training the person who you know ultimately will be better than you. Yeah. And how do you train someone to be better? than you are you ever were yeah and uh, yeah I, I could have done with maybe a bit more descent into his character because I yeah. think I think he kind of gets polished a bit of like kind of nice granddad but I think there is some there is probably some resentment yeah in the way it, it does touch on and I think you yeah. could probably if you were making a harsher film you might want to dig into I think so yeah and there's there's kind of He's very fiery with the young Borg, isn't he? Mm. Um, maybe they could have pushed that further. I don't know. Um, but I think we just, we get it across. I think we get it. Mm. Uh, so what did you think about the fact that it kind of cuts back and forth between past and present? Yeah, so this is this is always a struggle with a film that relies on a single event. Yeah. And you think, oh God, how are they going to stretch? Like, think of 127 hours. Yeah. There's a man trapped under a rock. How is that over 90 minutes long? And it's you're using yeah. flashbacks and this non-linear narrative to do that and so we start at the beginnings of the match and then we cut back to Borg yeah. playing against the garage and you get these I think it's it's done in a way that you kind of just get these key moments they're just trying to define little moments that lead to this event yeah. rather than saying here is Borg's life like, or this is the peak yeah. and the same for Macamore because then we're looking at 10 hours it's just trying to distill the journey into maybe I think it's five or six different 
moments for yeah, each man. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And you get these bits where uh, McEnroe's mum leans over his shoulder and kind of says, like, how come you only got 96% in your geography yeah. test? And you think, you kind of That's see the planting impact. the seed of yeah. his, like, you know, obsess- obsession with perfection. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the reverse for... For Bork, yeah. And I think that's it's this duality is yeah throughout the film and how McEnroe seems to be a few years behind Borg and that there is a mirroring between both of their journeys in that there is this there is this anger and there is this destruction and Borg has managed to quash that which McEnroe hasn't mm. and McEnroe seems to be on a journey to try and do that because yeah but what I think is there's my my favorite moment in the film is where they're in the changing room together and it, it's because you see Borg with his coach all the time and yeah. you see McEnroe with his friends and his dad yeah. all the time there's this lovely moment where they're in the changing room by themselves not on the court yeah and McEnroe obviously admires Borg and looks over to him and Borg admires McEnroe because McEnroe is showing all the emotion that he wishes he could show mm. And in this moment, Borg smiles at McEnroe. And that's amazing because you see him show emotion, even though it's just a tiny smile. And then in that moment as well, McEnroe, who we know is a fan of Borg, would normally be really excited about that. But because he's so trying to replicate Borg, he ignores it. And you see that it's almost romantic. (laughs) I don't think that's that's stupid to say. No, I I think think I agree with you there, yeah. And and I think that's ultimately the journey that we're on is a journey that could be destructive that ultimately becomes respect. Yeah. I think that's what it's about. And so yeah, we've you met you mentioned the match point and Wimbledon. And as a as a tennis fan, it's really nice to see a really good tennis film. <laughs> <laughs> because those two films are essentially rom coms that happen to be in the world of tennis. Yeah. And Woody Allen's favourite of his own films yeah well it's so nice it's it's really interesting i mean we've said that you can watch this film if you're a non-tennis fan but if you are a tennis fan there's so much there to really enjoy and when you see the uh his argument with jimmy connor's on court that's really great to see yeah and what's great about that moment is that we all know it's coming and they don't linger on it no they just and there's no build up to it absolutely yeah and to drop and to not have these um Hey, look, it's Jimmy Connors. It's yeah. just, up. Oh, that's Jimmy Connors. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just matter It's Jimmy Connors. <laughs> um, and so if you are or are not a tennis fan, um, but you do want to check out Borg McEnroe, it's out on the 22nd of September. Uh, once you do go and watch it, make sure you go on to Curzon Home Cinema uh, because there's actually, we're going to be broadcasting a Q&A from the film uh, with the cast and director and you'll be able to actually just watch that Q&A on Curzon Home Cinema from the 22nd to the 24th. So that's over next weekend or this weekend, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, So make sure you check that out for even more Borg McEnroe as well. Um, And if you're looking for something else to watch, The Villainess is out on Curzon Home Cinema now. Uh, I have to say I have not seen this. Uh, I know it did. It's just done press Fright Fest and Toronto, and it's come out with really great reviews. I've seen a single clip of a fight in a tunnel involving four motorbikes multiple swords lots of crashes 
somehow it seems to be in one take. If anyone's seen that footage from the Raid 2 where there's a cameraman who is disguised as, as a, a car yeah. seat so <laughs> that they can shoot this incredible stunt in one go. Uh, I watched this Villainess one and I even thinking about the Raid 2 one and trying to pull it apart and trying to figure out how it was done, I have no idea. Uh, this is one of the most insane stunts that I've seen, yeah. but without being like a huge Nolan-y stunt. It's, yeah. like, it's just amazing It's not there to work. impress you. Yeah. It's, not there. it's not showing off. Yeah, yeah. so I'm really excited uh, to watch The Villainess. That'll be out on Friday, so I'll be straight in line watching that. Excellent. Well, that's goodbye from Jake. Goodbye. That's goodbye from me. See you next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.